Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, let's go. I've been waiting to say this for a while. If you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 1 is where we find ourselves this morning as we begin our series through the letter to the Romans. If you don't have a Bible, as always, I want you to, I'd love for you to use one of the ones that you can find in the uh, rack in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to keep that Bible as, as our gift to you. We'd love for you to read it and come back to this church, or if this isn't the right place for you, find another gospel-believing, Bible-preaching church where you can learn about Jesus and And serve him and give your life to him. Well, as you're finding Romans chapter 1, let me say that um, it has been an ambition of mine since we started this church 11 years ago to preach through the book of Romans. At the beginning, I did not feel I'm up to it. And I still do not feel that I'm up to preaching through this letter. It's kind of like marriage or parenting. You're never ready. So you might as well just do it. No, that's not good advice. Don't, don't, don't. I take that back. I don't know. I have this little head cold and my logic is a little uh, skewed. Anyway, scratch the last 15 seconds. But when, when are you ready not just to preach through Romans, but really through, through any portion of the scripture because it's all inspired by God. And who, Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians. He says, who is sufficient for these things? Well, that's a rhetorical question, none of us, but God is gracious, and so I'm really looking forward to, to this journey through Romans. How long will we be in Romans, some of you have asked. Well, it took Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British-English pastor in London in the mid-1900s, he, it took him 366 sermons. John Piper started preaching through Romans in 1998, he finished in 2006, <laughs> Well, you'll be glad to know that it won't take us anywhere near as long as it took these two giant preachers. We'll take a few short breaks along the way, but I hope that as we journey through this letter, I think probably for the next year, maybe a little bit more, again with some breaks along the way, that it will be an important series for us as a church. Now, why is, is in my heart? Is there such anticipation for Romans? Well, again, all of the Bible is breathed out by God and inspired by him, but, but Romans in particular is a, is a God-drenched book. It is a sustained assault on human self-centeredness, and we live in an age of self-centeredness. We are self-centered people. I am a self-centered person. And Romans, these 16 chapters, which is a letter written from the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome, is staggeringly God-centered. In fact, it is the most God-centered book really in the whole Bible. If you look at just the the frequency of the usage of the word God. I think only the book of Acts has the word God or Lord used more, uh, more times, but 
when you consider that Acts is actually quite longer than Romans, the frequency of the usage of the word God or Lord is actually much more, more frequent in Romans. Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote an epic commentary on Romans, and in his preface to his commentary on Romans, he says this about this letter. He says, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel, and worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes, and the better it tastes. John Calvin A few years later, the great reformer said this about Romans, if we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. Now, we we may not be up for, as Luther commends us, memorizing Romans word for word, although that might be a wonderful thing for some of us to to try and do. But if not, I, I want to encourage us during this series through Romans, to get into the habit of reading Romans regularly. Now, this morning, we're going to read the first seven verses, and I think we're only going to cover the first four verses, and we're not going to go that slow through the whole book. It kind of depends on just the way it it falls out. But I do encourage us, as we do look, as we drill down in Romans in the coming months, that you get into the habit of reading large chunks of Romans in one setting over and over and over again, so that maybe by the end of this year, you will have read through Romans maybe dozens of times uh, in just your own uh, setting, and reading through it in large chunks. And when we gather on Sunday, we'll drill down in just a few passages and a few verses. But one thing I want to caution us about is that as beautiful and rich as Romans is, I don't want to send unwittingly the wrong message. And that wrong message is that maybe Romans is such a high mountain peak of Scripture that it is maybe unattainable to really understand for just average Christians like us. That is absolutely not the case. Granted, Romans is not theological kindergarten. Its logic is at times dense, but listen to me, friends, brothers and sisters, Romans can be understood, it can be grasped, it can be beheld, so as to make us more like Jesus and absorbed with his mission. Romans can be apprehended by a young child who can just see the the beauty of Christ and the depth of our sin, and the complete inability of a person to save themselves. And it can be plumbed with deep depths that find really, there's just no bottom to the end of the well that is the glory of Romans. So as we begin this journey, let's, let's begin it with humility but confidence. As maybe just a help, there's lots of wonderful commentaries on Romans. One that we have put in the Resource Center is a 
uh, a commentary by a really trusted uh, British commentator, pastor named John Stott. He just recently passed away a few years ago. Uh, he has written a commentary called The Message of Romans in the Bible Speaks Today series. It's excellent. There's a bunch of copies in the Resource Center for you there. If we run out of them, we'll restock it. But I'd, I'd commend that to you if you're looking to go deeper into Romans. Well, let me read the first seven verses. We're going to just handle the first four as we look at it this morning, but I want to read the greeting, the first seven verses, and let me pray, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God, and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we begin. Father, thank you for your kindness to us and for this beautiful letter to Romans. I pray that as we begin this journey together as a church that you would show us and teach us wonderful things and that you would do marvelous things among us. I pray that weak hearts would be fortified and encouraged. I pray that hearts that are still captive to besetting sin would be freed. I pray that hearts that are dead would be made alive. I pray that bondages that have enslaved us for decades would be loosed. I pray that marriages would be mended. Rebellious children would be called to faith in Jesus. I pray that the blind would see. The deaf would hear. That you, Lord, would receive glory as we stare at the glory of your Son in Romans. Do these things, Lord, not because we are worthy or deserving, but because Jesus is, and because you delight in making much of yourself through exalting your Son, so may we stare at the bright Son, Jesus Christ, in this letter, for your glory and our joy, in Jesus' name, amen. A little background <clears throat> on Romans, the church at Rome. We're not really sure who planted the church in Rome, although the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Romans like he writes lots of letters in the New Testament. And many of the letters that he writes in the New Testament are to churches that he has planted. Well, that's not the case with the Roman church. In fact, he had not yet visited Rome. He had never met these Christians. He knew them to be a church, though, and he's writing to the Roman church. The church at this point is made up of mostly Gentiles, but certainly there were some Jewish Christians, who were ethnic Jews who had, 
had believed and accepted the Messiah, but the majority of the makeup of the church in Rome at this point is certainly Gentiles. Clearly, Rome at this time is the capital of the world in many ways. It's an incredibly important city. It's, it's uh, the base of, of operations for the Roman Empire, obviously, and really the center of the known world at the time. Now, behind the scenes, it's really important that you understand what's going on in the city of Rome, in particular in the church in Rome at this time. Paul writes this letter in his third missionary journey, probably from the city of Corinth, while he's ministering and planting the church in Corinth in the late 50s, 57 AD or so. Now, earlier on, a little less than a decade before, in 49 AD, the Roman emperor Claudius, because of a dispute between Jewish Christians and Jews who did not believe in Jesus, because there was some disturbances between those two groups of people in Rome, the Roman emperor Claudius evicted Jews from Rome. Basically, he just kicked them out. He didn't want that, he didn't want that political liability. He didn't want to have to deal with their, with their disputes. And so he evicted Jewish people from Rome in AD 49. What this did to the Christian church in Rome was it made it basically exclusively Gentile. So from AD 49 all through the early 50s, the church in Rome is comprised of almost exclusively Gentiles. Well, Claudius, the Roman Empire or emperor, dies in AD 54, and after he dies, his eviction notice of the Jews expires, and so the Jews, the Jewish Christians in particular, start to come back to Rome and reintegrate into the church in Rome. But what has happened during the absence of the Jews in Rome during this time is the Roman Christian church which is comprised of mainly Gentiles, almost exclusively Gentiles at this point, has developed a distinctly Gentile flavor. Now, these Jewish Christians are coming back into the church, and there was tension between these Gentile Christians and these Jewish Christians. And Paul is writing this letter to these Roman Christians, both Gentiles and Jewish Christians, to really... Uh, help to, to alleviate some of the tensions between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And these were deep problems and deep tensions. There, were, there was much animosity between really the promises of God in the Old Testament and the place of the Gentiles and all sorts of other issues like food and dietary laws and circumcision and the place of the Old Testament law. And Paul is writing to these Christians who are in this sort of ethnic tension within the same church and the strategy that he takes to to alleviate the tension is to basically just drop a huge gospel bomb on them and explain to them the glory of Christ and how the good news of the gospel solves not just all of their little ethnic problems that they're facing and cultural problems but really all the problems of mankind. And so what Paul does is by the providence of God, this little problem in the Roman church becomes an opportunity for Paul because he didn't know these people. He just goes full force on explaining the gospel to them. He does a cannonball in the deep end of this tension so as to compel them to unity in Christ. And there's another reason why this is so important to Paul. Paul. 
because he sees the strategic import, the strategic importance of Rome, and he is wanting to use Rome as a base of later gospel operation. He eventually wants to get to Spain, and he wants to use Rome as a kind of go-between between Jerusalem and Spain, a kind of midway point as a base of operations for the sending of the gospel. And so those are Paul's motivations for writing to the Romans. And those two things, just those two situations, become the, the, the situation that God uses in his providence to unwind Paul in this great treatise, in this letter to Romans. Well, what is the result of this situation? We have in the letter to Romans probably the fullest explanation in the whole Bible of the plan of God to save sinners. Now, of course, it doesn't cover every doctrinal point. There are some things that are notably absent in Romans. But this is very, uh, I think, certainly the fullest explanation of God's plan to save sinners through his son, Jesus Christ. Just a very, very rough outline of Romans. Is the first eight chapters is really Paul's explanation of the gospel. Romans 1, 2, and 3 are really an explanation of human sinfulness and need. And then in the second half of 3, all the way through 8, coming to the, the really the beautiful high point of Romans chapter 8 is Paul's explanation of the gospel. And then chapters 9 through 11, Paul takes up the question of whether or not God's word has failed to his people, the Jews in the Old Testament? And he answers that question. And then chapters 12 through 16 is Paul applying the gospel to the aspect really of everyday life. So one through eight is the gospel, nine through 11, answering the question about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. 12 through 16 is applying the gospel to everyday life. With that, Let's look back at our text, and I want us to see as we begin this journey through Romans, three truths, and we're going to be in verses one through seven for the next two weeks, and we're just going to cover verses one through four here this morning, and we're going to begin by looking at three truths about the gospel of God in Romans one through four. The first is I want us to see this, that the gospel was the point of Paul's life. The gospel was the point of Paul's life. Look again at verse one. It says that Paul is a servant. He calls himself, this is Paul writing, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. If we're gonna understand Romans rightly, we have to, I think it'd be very helpful for us to understand a little about the man who wrote it. So who was Paul? Who is this man, Paul, that writes this letter in much of, in fact, the New Testament? Well, we read in places like Philippians where he describes himself before his conversion. He's called Saul at that point in the Bible. He describes himself as the epitome of a zealous Jew. He was a legalistic Pharisee. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. In fact, he was so zealous about his Jewish faith that he felt that Christianity in Christ was a threat to Judaism, and he was a persecutor of the church. In fact, in Acts chapter 8, we read where one of the first Christian martyrs, Stephen, is stoned. And in Acts chapter 7, we read this incredible account of the martyrdom of Stephen. And then at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, in verses 1 through 3, we read about how Paul, at this time called Saul, is there really consenting to the 
execution, the stoning death of this Christian martyr, Stephen. It says in Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul, who later is called Paul, approved of his execution, meaning the stoning of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul, Paul, was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So this this is the pre-conversion life of the man who wrote Romans and then half of the New Testament. And then we read, if we skip forward in Acts, just one chapter over to Acts chapter 9, we read about the miraculous conversion of Paul. And I think it would be good for us as we begin Romans to read about Paul's conversion. Let's read in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, again Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he's not just a passive disagreer of Christianity. He is actively seeking out Christians to persecute them. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are, you, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. And, he said, and the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in, and lay hand, lay, come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, I love this, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. And so Ananias is like, God, are you, sh- are you, you sure about this? <laughs> I mean, I like that. Other people are scared too. I like it. But verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him said, brother Saul, This took courage, didn't it? The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, 
He is the Son of God. So just, let's just take in that scene. In Acts chapter 8, Saul is breathing out murderous threats against Christians, consenting to the execution of Stephen, getting papers from the chief priests to hunt down Christians. Jesus, because of the preordained plan of God for the life of Saul, who will become Paul, makes a return visit from heaven, knocks Saul off his donkey on the way to Damascus, roughs him up, blinds him, says, stop it, and preach about me to the Gentiles. Let's just go ahead and put that in the category of that don't happen every day. <laughs> Paul was a slave to sin and the law, and because of the sovereign power of God, was made a slave to Christ. And now we can understand, can you understand Paul, who was once a zealot to destroy Christianity, literally overnight becomes a zealot for the cause of Christ. Because of the gracious, sovereign intervention of God. God intervened in Paul's life. Now let's, let's, let's acknowledge that although this is a picture of how God can interrupt anybody's life, there is something profound in one time and particular going on in the life of Paul here. He had a plan to use Paul as his voice piece, his mouthpiece to the Gentile world through whom he would be this apostle that would come much of the New Testament. Um, that, that is clear. But if, if, if nothing else, I think we can at least certainly see that God is pleased to intervene miraculously, not just in these instances where he's doing something in redemptive history in the life of Paul, but in any of our lives. You know, I, this is the way salvation really works for, for all of us. Now, we may not be called to the measure of ministry that Paul had to be the apostle to the Gentiles and write much of the New Testament, but friends, this is a picture of salvation. None of us just kind of drift into the Lord. Whether you grew up in the church or whether you were running from God, God, by his sovereign grace, whether it was when you were five, raised in a Christian home, or whether it was when you were 50, far from the Lord, God intervenes. And the good news is, is that nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace. Nobody would have been a less likely candidate to be the apostle to the Gentiles than the apostle Paul. It was paradoxical. It didn't make sense. Anybody but this guy who murders Christians. And that's the very one that God put his finger on in eternity past and said, mine. And I'm going to use the depth of his sin and his rebellion, fighting against the gospel, to be a display of my glory as I turn him around for my glory. Friends, who among us has people that we love that are far from God and feel like maybe they are outside of his reach? When we read the conversion of Paul, we should have great hope. No one is beyond the reach of grace. Paul calls himself here a servant and an apostle. He considered himself 
Really, this word servant is, is maybe even more literally translated a slave, a bondservant, completely owned by Jesus. But he wasn't owned without, just for indentured, sir. He was owned for the sake of a mission. He, he recognizes that he is an apostle. I think it's important for us as we begin to just understand what an apostle is and why it is so important for us to understand this office of apostle that Paul received. Let me go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul speaks about his, his office, his authority as an apostle. So this word apostle is a Greek word that means Christ's sent ones. And in the New Testament, the word apostle in this context, is referring to a particular group of people, the 12 disciples. Jesus, above and beyond all of the other disciples and followers of of, of him at the time, these 12 disciples, Jesus gives a special authority to. Now, we know that at the end of Jesus' life, one of them falls away, Judas. All of that was according to the sovereign plan of God. Then they add another Matthias. So there are 12 apostles. And these 12 men had a special one-time authority given by Jesus to represent him, to establish the church in the New Testament, and to be his mouthpiece to the world. They were to be the ones through whom the New Testament comes. So every one of the 27 books or letters of the New Testament is either written by one of the apostles or it's written by one of the apostles' ministry associates. And so the test for the New Testament church about what book would make it into the Bible in the New Testament as the church under the superintending providential power of the Holy Spirit in the early decades and centuries is forming the New Testament, what would be in the New Testament, what we know to be God's word. It is the test that the New Testament church used was whether or not these books or letters, and there were many letters written, many, many things written at this time circulating throughout the church at the time in the Roman Empire and in the Christian world. The test became whether or not to include it in the inspired word, holy word of God, was whether or not it came through the hand of one of these apostles or through one of their ministry associates. For example, like Luke is, a, is not one of the, of the disciples, apostles of Jesus, but he's a ministry associate of Paul. And so the church accepts Luke's gospel and the book of Acts, which Luke wrote, because of the authority, the apostolic authority of Paul. And Paul claims this apostolic authority. And what was an apostle? It was one who saw the resurrected Jesus and was with him and was specially commissioned by him. So there were many people that saw the resurrected Jesus, but these 12 plus Paul and James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, have this office of apostle. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What does he mean when he says untimely born? He means that he was, his apostleship, his becoming an apostle was 
untimely. It means he became an apostle after these other guys. So he had spent a couple decades persecuting Christians. Jesus makes a return visit. He now meets the qualifications of the other apostles because he saw the resurrected Jesus through Jesus' return trip to him in Acts chapter 9 when he knocks him off a horse, roughs, roughs him up, and calls him to preach the gospel for him. And so Paul claims rightly his apostolic authority. So you say, Brad, okay, I got it. Why, why, are, you, um, why are you belaboring this point? Well, because there are people out there that are in what they would call ministry, and I put that in air quotes, in the world today that would call themselves an apostle. And you should run from them. All of the apostles are dead. They had a one-time particular authority to be the mouthpiece through which the New Testament came to establish the New Testament church, and they're dead. We don't need the apostles anymore because we have the Bible complete. And so if somebody claims to be an apostle, um, well, I was going to say something that a little ornery. Um, just, 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 don't, just don't listen to them, okay? And if, for the sake of ratings, the National Geographic Channel or the Discovery Channel, a few weeks prior to Easter, runs this special about this n- newly discovered Gospel of Thomas that was just discovered that says that Jesus had a wife and four kids. Oh my gosh, what's going to happen now? We need not believe it because these are not new things. We, we know these documents were around, but the church early on didn't recognize these false gospels because they don't come through the hands of one of the apostles who are dead. And so friends, the point being is that we have a Bible that we can have great confidence in. We know that what we have was given by God through the hands of these particular people, superintended by the work of the Holy Spirit, preserved in the church, so that what we have now, we can be sure, is God's word delivered to us. Friends, that's absolutely important. The gospel and the message of the gospel was the point of Paul's life. Here's just a little point of application, a question for us before we move on. Is the gospel the point of our lives? I mean, what a waste it would be if we just looked at Romans like we were going to the zoo to look at the gorilla exhibit. I grew up, you know, outside of San Diego. Not, not outside of San Diego, like way, like in the desert, like an hour and a half. San Diego is the prettiest city in the world, and El Centro is the, is the ugliest city in the world. But we would go to the zoo in San Diego all the time, and I remember my brother and I would like to go to the gorilla exhibit. And we would just sit and watch those gorillas. And I think that sometimes we can look at the Bible, especially some of these high points, and just kind of observe it. But what a, what a waste it would be to absorb the beauty and the truth of Romans and not, not actually have it sink in and change our own lives. Friends, we may not have Paul's gifts or his authority as an apostle, but we have his Christ and we have his message. Philippians 1.21 says that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That should be our anthem as well. Listen to what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3 verse 8. 
This is not just applying to him as an apostle. It's applying to all those that would name the name of Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The gospel and its message and its object, which is Christ, was the point of Paul's life, and it should be the point of every Christian's life. The Christian life, as explained in the Bible, really makes no sense at all unless it is viewed this way. So practically, though, What does a gospel-centered life look like for ordinary people like us? Well, just a few thoughts. One, I think it means that we know the gospel well, that we learn to preach it to ourselves, that we rehearse it in our own minds, that God is holy, that we by nature are sinful, that Jesus is God become man. He lived a perfect and obedient life, and he laid down his perfect, obedient life, which was fully human and fully God on the cross to bear the wrath of God, to satisfy God's judgment on our behalf, then to rise again in victory, conquering sin, death, and the grave, and now commands all people everywhere to turn and trust in Him. And those that put their hope in Jesus give evidence that He has given them a new heart and they are eternally secure. And though they will still battle with sin in this life, Nothing can snatch them from his hand. And they fight their remaining sin by the same good news of the gospel that first saved them. By remembering more and more whose they are. Friends, knowing the gospel well is living out our lives with the gospel as its point. Secondly, putting yourself in gospel-centered community, being around other people that are there to encourage you because we all suffer from gospel amnesia. We need to live in an echo chamber where the gospel is believed and where other people like us are striving imperfectly to live out the gospel. We should thirdly build our relationships around the gospel. If we are married, we should seek, or if we're looking to be married, we should seek a spouse that knows, believes, and cherishes the gospel. If we're parents, if we have children, we should make them knowing the gospel and believing the gospel the prime goal of our lives and our parenting. If we are in any type of friendship or relationship or work relationship, we should seek to make the gospel clear in those relationships. And we should seek to be a witness for the gospel in some way in all that we do. And fourthly, we should leverage our gifts, our time, and our talents and our treasures for gospel ministry in practical ways. Being a Christian who's just thinking in terms, who's viewing life through the lens of the gospel. It's the reason why I exist, to bring glory to God through displaying the good news of what God has done to redeem sinners through the work of his son. The gospel was the point of Paul's life and it should be the point of ours as well. The second truth, let's pick up the pace. The gospel is the point of the whole 
Bible. Look at verse 2. He says there that of this gospel, that he was set apart for the gospel of God, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So what's going to happen is we work through Romans. We won't get too deep into this right here because we're going to spend so many weeks looking at it, especially as we get into like Romans 4 where Paul explains Abraham and the law and what the Old Testament means in the life of a New Testament Christian. We're going to see Paul's unified view of God's plan for salvation. Paul is going to make a case, and he's going to make it well, that God has always had one plan. Many Christians, I think, unwittingly look at the Old Testament as a kind of picture of God that is one way, and then in the New Testament, it's a kind of gracious picture of God. But as we journey through Romans, we're going to see that there has always been one gospel. And in the Old Testament, the gospel is seen in shadow form. And so when we read the Old Testament and when we read stories about David and Moses and the prophets, they're not just moral stories for us to learn how to do better, but they are shadows that point us to the coming Messiah, to Christ the true King. And we read and we will find and we will discover as Paul lays out for us that God has always had one plan. And the Bible is one unified story. Listen to how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 1 verse, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So friends, what was the exodus from Egypt where Moses rescued his people from Egypt about? It was about the greater deliverer, Jesus, that was coming. What is King David's reign in the Old Testament about? It's about the greater King Jesus who is coming. What is Isaiah's prophecies about the suffering servant about? It's about the true suffering servant Jesus, the one who is coming. All of this is set forth in Christ from the beginning of time. And we're going to see as we journey through Romans that the whole point of the Bible is Christ and his gospel. Just an application question for us before we move on to our final truth. This should give us great comfort as we live in a chaotic world. Let's think about how unsettled our world is in so many ways. When we see this truth that God has had a plan from beginning to end, that God has been superintending the course of human history from the beginning, we should take comfort because nothing is out of his control. There is no pharaoh in Egypt, no king in Babylon, no emperor in Rome, no dictator in Europe or Russia, no president of the United States or terrorist leader in the Middle East or cancer cell or wayward whatever that can thwart or derail his plan one iota. 
But this does not mean that everything will go well for us here in this earth. And we will read about it in Romans chapter 8 where he says that we are being killed all the day long. We're being persecuted. But what shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Shall death? No, not even death shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, our God is in the heavens as Springer read at the beginning of service, and he does all that he pleases. He is in control of human history. And then the third and final truth as we end is that the gospel is about Jesus. It's about this one who is fully man and fully God. Look at verses three and four again. Concerning his son, who is descended, speaking of the gospel here, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So do you see there embedded in those two verses is speaking about Jesus' humanity. He was descended from David according to the flesh. He's fully human. Hebrews 2 and 4 says that he identifies with us in every way, yet without sin. In order to make atonement for our sins, he had to become completely like us. But we needed more than just a perfect human. We needed an infinite holy God. And then in verse 4, it says he's declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 4, speaking of his divinity. So verse 3, speaking of his humanity. Verse 4, speaking of his divinity. And we see just in these two verses at the beginning of Romans embedded in this, this short passage the truth about the glory of Christ. Martin Luther said this, and by the way, you should prepare yourself for lots of Martin Luther quotes. Luther, uh, the Protestant Reformation really uh, was sparked by Martin Luther reading the book of Romans. In fact, um, Romans is remarkable in how it's been used in the history of the church in just really drastic conversions. In fact, Augustine, St. Augustine in the late 300s, early 400s, was a young man who was racked with lust and sexual sin. And he was praying one day in a garden and was uh, really wrestling with his sin, seemingly unable to break away from uh, giving himself over to indulging his flesh. And he heard a child in the garden next to him just singing a little children's song, saying something along the lines of, take up and read, take up and read. And he took this as a sign from the Holy Spirit to go get his Bible and open it and read the first verse that his eyes landed upon. So he played the first version of Bible roulette. And he opened to Romans chapter 13. I don't have that verse up for you, but he opened to Romans chapter 13. And he had just been praying for God to break him from his indulgence to the flesh and carnality. And this is what he read in Romans chapter 13. In verse 13, he said, he read this, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, 
but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And Luther writes in his autobiography called Confessions, which is a classic, that reading that verse on that day finally broke him from the chains of his sexual addiction and he rose from there free at last. Where was I going? Oh, so you should, you should, you should be prepared for lots of Luther quotes. And Luther read Augustine's thoughts on Romans. And Luther, bound in the legalism of the Catholic Church at the time, read Romans and it freed his heart. John Wesley read Luther's preface to Romans and came to saving faith very likely through reading Luther's preface out loud to Romans. This book has been used marvelously. But here's, oh, this is what I was getting at. You should get used to Luther quotes. And here's another one. Don't have it on the screen. In this verse right here, verses 3 and 4, here the door is thrown open wide for the understanding of Holy Scripture. That is, that everything must be understood in relation to Christ. The gospel is about Jesus. It is the core and central truth of the Bible, of Romans, of all that God has to say to us and what he has done to reconcile the people for himself. The good news of Romans is not self-help. It's not pragmatic tips on how to fight anger or do this or be more successful or more productive. It is the glorious news that man is fallen and completely unable and God is holy and has, by his gracious provision, decided to be the one who is just and the one who justifies the ungodly by sending his son Jesus to bear the wrath for his people. Jesus is the content of the book of Romans, of the gospel. I end with this. Jonathan Edwards, the great theological mind of uh, America in the 1700s, one of his famous sermons is called The Excellency of Christ. And in this sermon... He looks at how Jesus is this incredible combination of seemingly polar opposite attributes. In one sense, he's fully man, but he's fully God. And he's so excellent that he would be these extreme opposites put together in this one person called Christ. This is the point. Let me just read to you the first first few points of his sermon, and then I'm going to read a quote. He says, In Christ, there meet in Jesus Christ infinite highness, and infinite condescension. There meet in Jesus Christ infinite justice and infinite grace. In the person of Christ meet together infinite glory and lowest humility. In the person of Christ meet together infinite majesty and transcendent meekness. In the person of Christ are co-joined absolute sovereignty and perfect resignation. And friends, you may be saying, okay, Brad, whatever, why, why is this important? Because as we journey through Romans, we will stare at a Christ who is alone able to identify and save. He can identify with us in our weakness. And he can save us from our sins 
because he alone is worthy. Listen to what Edwards concludes. This is, I think, my favorite quote from a dead person outside of the Bible. And it's not from Charles Spurgeon. Edwards writes this, and we end with this. If you are a poor, distressed sinner whose heart is ready to sink for fear that God never will have mercy on you, you need not be afraid to go to Christ for fear that he is either unable or unwilling to help you. Here is a strong foundation and an inexhaustible treasure to answer the necessities of your poor soul. And here is infinite grace and gentleness to invite and embolden a poor, unworthy, fearful soul to come to it. If Christ accepts of you, you need not fear but that you will be safe. For he is a strong lion for your defense. And if you come, you need not fear but that you shall be accepted. For he is like a, li- like a lamb to all that come to him and receives them with infinite grace and tenderness. It is true, he has awful majesty. He is the great God, and infinitely high above you. But there is this to encourage and embolden the poor sinner, that Christ is a man as well as God. He is a creature as well as the creator. And he is the most humble and lowly in heart of any creature in heaven or earth. This may well make the poor, unworthy creature bold in coming to him. You need not hesitate one moment, but may run to him and cast yourself upon him. You will certainly be graciously and meekly received by him. Though he is a lion, (laughs) he will only be a lion to your enemies, but he will be a lamb to you. Uh, Praise God. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we need more of your son. We need more of his infinite majesty and humility. We need more of his sovereignty and his condescension. We need more of his lion-like fierceness against our remaining sin. And we need more of his lamb-like gentleness for our remaining disobedience. Lord, for my friends in this room that are believers in Jesus, may you begin us on this journey through Romans. And may you do wonderful things in our lives. May you break chains. May you heal wounds. May you put steel in our spine. May you clarify the gospel. May Jesus burn brighter in our hearts and minds and in our lives. And for my friends that are in this room that do not know Jesus, 
or many of them may think that they do. They've been lied to by cultural Christianity that has presented Jesus as a kind of add-on to the successful life. Lord, would you crush them and then build them back on the sure foundation of Christ. May you bring a sledgehammer to their self-sufficiency. May you destroy it and build it back on Christ. For the person who has come into this room and knows himself not to be trusting in Christ. They're not self-deceived. But maybe they feel like there's no room for a person like them. That there's no way that God could ever love a person like them. Lord, may you tune their ears away from that lie that they've believed. And may the example of Paul ring in their ears. This man who breathed murderous threats against Christians, you saved. Nobody is beyond the reach of your grace. May that person today finally look away from the hugeness of their sin to the far greater mountain of God's grace. And may they finally let go of the idol that they have made of their own insufficiency And may they cling to Christ and trust in him. Lord, I pray that you would do these things for the renown and glory of your name and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.